Welcome to the Smart Connector, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs be the leader their ideal people love. Build your influence, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. The story of how I met Mark is quite a funny one. I bought a new Audi and struck up a conversation with Ricky, the very friendly consultant who sold it to me. He told me he was just about to move to a new job doing tech sales for a lovely CEO he'd known for some time. Anyway, within a couple of weeks, he was on the phone again trying to sell me tech solutions. I politely declined but asked him to put me in touch with a lovely guy he said he'd gone to work for, as I was looking for an entrepreneur with a tech and telecoms history to interview. And that was how I met Mark. He's such an interesting guy, and I know you'll love our telephone interview. My name's Jane Bader, and I'd like to welcome you to the Smart Connector podcast, which focuses on the power of people in business. My guest today is Mark Schrager. Mark's a successful telecoms entrepreneur with 20 years' experience of building and selling companies. He has various business interests, both here in the UK and in South Africa, which we'll be exploring further in our interview. Following on from an NLP Master Practitioner qualification and an NLP Trainers training, Mark embarked on an MA degree in Applied Coaching. His mission was to design a new and exciting embodied coaching methodology, which integrates elements from Aikido, Clean Language, Symbolic Modeling, NLP, the Alexander Technique and Journal Work. This exciting product is Neurosomatic Coaching and is currently only available from Mark's company, Brighter Lives Limited. So welcome, Mark. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I'd like to kick off by hearing more about your current telecoms business and all about some of the other businesses that you've built and sold. Yeah, so about 20 years ago, I followed in the footsteps what was supposed to be only temporarily following in the footsteps of my uncle into sales in telecoms on the promise that I deferred after my first year of university I would be able to earn enough money to go back the following year and, and cease worrying about money because it was becoming a bit stressful especially in London so as you can tell I didn't go back uh, not, not for quite a long time and uh, what I ended up doing was continuing to learn in an entrepreneurial environment in very very hot <laughs> running conditions where you had less staff than you need to to grow businesses under very very sort of pressurized timescales. as a byproduct that was very lucky to work in an environment where while on the one hand it was very pressurized and quite stressful on the other they it was very intelligent with systems so what we would do is anything that could be automated as a process would be uh, which would therefore reduce the impact of human error and also the need for more humans which is obviously overheads which is one of the issues with scalability yeah so I got a very fast, quick, very up, up close and personal view on, on how to, to drive uh, growth in a business, how to make it scalable, and how to work with people under, under pressure. Didn't get to continue the university uh, education initially, but a very compressed MBA was, was kind of given to me. Fabulous. <laughs> that sounds great. How about after that? I mean, that pretty much has spanned 20 years, but what I, what I did get was the opportunity after helping deliver a very successful exit for um, people who have become my investors over the years. Back in 2004, the company was sold for many millions. I wasn't an owner, but I was the person who was driving the sales in that business. 
and they backed me to launch my own brand uh, in 2005 at, at, at 27 years old. I branded, recruited, launched, and uh, and drove a business that was exited within three years. Wow. Um, that brand was was part of what attracted Carphone Warehouse at the time we bought the company. Yes. And they also gave me two years of a senior executive role. Yeah. The corporate, which I never thought I would do. And that gave me the other side of, of that picture. I actually ended up writing my most well-received article on LinkedIn, which had over two and a half thousand views. Amazing. 200 sort of likes, which is difficult on LinkedIn, as I'm sure you'll appreciate. Oh, yes. Prompted writing an article, which I had to had to get out of my system, really, which was to contrast and compare what it was like to uh, be an entrepreneur that builds builds a seven or eight million pound company, or be a an executive in a in a business that looks after a similar level of revenues. And I looked at the learning cycle between the two, and you know, kind of what came out of that was, from my experience, was that the uh, the entrepreneur will go through le- more learning cycles than an executive in a business looking after a certain amount of revenue. So whilst the entrepreneur looks riskier, there actually it's the risk element that uh, upskills and trains the entrepreneur, and it makes them it helps the the successful successful ones anyway. It helps them to make better decisions in the future because they've got more hard evidence, and the hard evidence comes in the form of failures. So essentially, we're prepared as an entrepreneur to turn the learning cycle around, get to outcomes, review the outcomes, learn from them reintegrate them and repackage them up as a, as a new platform of learning. And this learning cycle is a lot, a lot slower and, um, and less frequent uh, in, in a corporate environment. And that's one of the reasons I left. Um, but there are for other people, they prefer that way because, you know, the security element and and some of the investment and the working environment is, is obviously quite different in the corporate environment and obviously not to be um, played down. Wow. Well, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating, Mark. So would you say that entrepreneurs are born or made? <laughs> that old question. <laughs> uh, well, I, I got into becoming an entrepreneur out of extraordinary esteem for someone who I, I looked up to, which is about all that would have made an introvert, which is what I was at the time, step out of uh, an academic environment where I wanted to become a journalist to go face-to-face knocking on doors in businesses. It was either I was going to succeed or I go mental, lose my mind completely. And I think I almost did, actually, at the, at the turning point. <laughs> I remember one day getting out of a tube heading somewhere in North London, and I basically just brainwashed myself as I walked down the street saying, you will get this order. There is no such thing as no. You are going to absolutely answer the <laughs> Why wouldn't they buy from you? They've already bought from you. Come on, what's the problem here? Yeah. And about an hour later, I had three order forms in my hand. That's amazing. That's really, really good. I must have run my brain hot that that day. Uh, Went back in the office and uh, hailed a success on the edge of massive failure. You know, it was, you know, it was an interesting thing. I think what I'm trying to highlight is that I did that. I obviously went through the comfort zone right out into a very sort of bizarre no man's land and to the other side. Yes. And I've done that several things, several times in life since. That happened early on. I was maybe, what, 21 or something. And having gone through that experience and knowing that you can get through that will help. It'll help an awful lot in, in so many different ways in life. And so on that, that, on that level, I think I, I was kind of forged that way. And I think I was also, it came from inside. What made me continue was something that came from inside. Yes, fantastic. 
I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on failure, Mark, because I've been doing a few of these interviews and I know that there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are still terrified of failure. And of course, I share your view that the biggest lessons come from, from our fa failures. But of course, failure is never a nice thing, is it? Yeah, absolutely. It's very unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'd like to know, Mark, when have you failed and what have your biggest lessons been? Yes. I mean, so one of the best things I can, I can offer on, on failure is that get it get it done as often as possible and out of the way as early as possible yeah so like my little girl is is adamant she's not going to learn to ride her bike but she's got seven so far so that's <laughs> going to last so long now because i'm going to i'm absolutely going to make sure that that doesn't carry on and i can see it in her that you know that she's fully prepared to live with this for the rest of her life as something you know <laughs> she's happy to never have done which i think is the worst kind of failure you know to never have done it that, that that's an awful failure yes um, but um, I failed early on, got it out of the way nicely. I failed most of my GCSEs. Walked away from high school with a C in English literature and a C in Russian. I learned Russian as a foreign language. Oh. <laughs> so obviously, so there was something right about my brain. It was just something wrong about everything else. I didn't have a, a particularly great time at, uh, at school. So at 16, I had no idea that my life was going to get better every year without yes. fail thereafter. Oh. So that's been quite good, I have to say. But yeah, so it got, got the failure out of the way there. And then I didn't exactly cover myself in glory academically going forward. And then went through three months of failure in my first sort of proper door-to-door -door sales job as the nephew of someone that was famous of famous for being very good at sales, you know, like literally knock them down as you walk in. Right. Uh, I was starting to, you know, basically damage the well, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but what I did do, uh, and I'd say that, that before I quit, actually, I was going to quit from the, from the door knocking thing. Uh, I rang up my, my uncle and I said to him, look, you know, I'm just going to give you a fair warning. I don't want to do this and you find out from someone else. But, I'm, you know, tomorrow I'm likely to walk in and, and quit. And he gave me about half an hour on the phone, which was long for him. He was a very busy fellow back then. And, you know, perhaps he could have given me more time. But he did give me that half hour. And what, what, what happened on that call is he said, look, talk to me about the, the three worst things that have happened. So we went through one and he said, okay, what do you get from that? Uh, what could you do differently? And it was to do with the fact that I was choking as I was walking into the business. And I said, I could probably think about what I'm going to say better before I go in there. And he said, cool. Well, there's one thing. So you're better prepared. You don't have to react about um, whether you, you, you know, you're going to have the right thing to say in, in the moment. I think the second one was something like I would oversell. And then the customer would tell me that, I was pitching something they didn't want and all I was trying to do was give them options. Right. Which led me more towards learning. Eventually that became uh, you know, two years later, a sales, a brief sales training where I understood about the features, advantage and benefits. Yeah. Selling the benefits. So, uh, you know, listening to what the customer's actual needs are to stimulate those. Uh, it's a lot easier to then deliver um, whatever they want really, because they'll tell you, but I got, I got the gist of that one back then. And I think the last one was to the biggest mistake is not asking for the order. Yeah. And so you have a fantastic conversation, you waste an hour of your life, and then they'll say goodbye. Right. Uh, and it is to, and actually his version was to ask for the order up front, you know, and it was very patter based. It was just, you know, I'm going to be really straight with you. We would really love your business. What do we need to do to get it? Right, right. And I must have mixed those in the next day and stirred them up and 
cracked everything I could at it. But that's an example of summarizing, chunking up, and creating a platform to move on from, from, from failures. Because without that information, all you're, all you're left with is what essentially causes fear in the first place, which is a space with no information. And the fear of what lies in that dark space is almost always worse than the thing in itself when you get there, you know. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great perspective. So, Mark, I, I'd like to talk about this guy who was your uncle. What, what, what was his name, just to give a name to a... Alan. Alan, okay, right. So, Alan, you know, he seemed to be a very influential person in your life. Was he the one who was your role model and your mentor at that particular time? He was an accidental role model, I would have okay. to say, in that he would say to you, he would never put himself forward as an actual role model, especially during that part of his life. I want to bring his life out on the podcast, but he, uh, he made some interesting decisions back then. He, he okay. became a multimillionaire, and don't get me wrong, phenomenally successful as, as a salesperson, as a business builder. But other aspects, you know, are, 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 it's an interesting overview. But I was very lucky, actually. So if you take it from, and this is to lead it towards other areas of my life that I'm interested in, if you take it from an embodied perspective. Yeah. Uh, as a contrast with more, being more cognitive, Alan is a very kinesthetic, very felt sense, very embodied kind of person, right? Mm -hmm. So he would walk into a room and kind of know what the mood is. Okay. And I can see that I was running sales teams underneath him. We would walk in and I'd have a sense that something was kind of not right. He'd come in and smash it up. And I couldn't figure out why that was happening. And it would, it would take me off, you know, to put me off, uh, off my balance. And the fact was, is that he just knew what certain kinds of feelings in a room meant. Right. He, he knew what that meant quicker than I did. And so I, had, I lived with the question for a while. So if he spotted something and he's right, how does that work? Interesting. So I started to develop that kind of sense. And I think actually where I was most successful in selling and, and working with people was when I actually uh, allowed the felt, se felt sense to tell me what's going on before I started putting a, a word on it benefit of that is that you listen and, and observe for a bit longer yes. uh, so that, that that that's kind of an angle the cognitive side of it uh, i was already over over thoughtful over sort of cognitive at that point so the cognitive side was always a battle really um, but i had other people around me and one particular his business partner at the time was overtly cognitive was more than likely to draw you a graph before he spoke to you about anything okay and the quick understanding of how to chunk something down and, and wrap it back up go to the big picture, tell a bigger story, you know, that kind of thing and it was very, very helpful. So I ended up at the launch of the first company that I launched, having a bit of an integration between what drives me as an individual and the influences of these two people, one being incredibly kinesthetic and the other one being very, very cognitive. Uh-huh. They sound like the, like the perfect business partners. That is about the only way <laughs> they became the perfect business partners. Yeah. Yes, um, credit to them. But that they, they were, for people to model around in their heyday, yeah. He was, you know, a very powerful emotional figure and a very, very, very sharp cognitive figure. Very, very interesting. Well, we're going to get onto that in a minute, Mark. But first of all, I'd just like you to tell us about the business that you're running at the moment, because that's also very exciting in telecoms. Yeah, so New Star Networks, uh, essentially, it's a telecommunications company that um, services the whole of the UK. But we also, back when we launched this business, my business partner and I exited our earnout from Carpenter Warehouse. At that point, he decided that he wanted to go to, back to South Africa. He's from South Africa. And just at the moment before we say goodbye, we had a conversation to say, look, you know, well, we've worked really well over what's now five years. 
my core skill is, is selling, negotiating, that kind of thing, and marketing, and his is operations and technology. Yeah. And it'd be a real shame if we just let that go to waste. Literally in a pub, over a handshake, we just agreed that, you know, he when he went back to South Africa, he would start as one man beginning of a contact center, and I would start as one man beginning of a sales team in the UK. Stepped out into nothing, thin air for nine months of no salary, same his side. It was a little easier for him in, in South Africa in terms of the... Uh, cost of living but in London I certainly felt the burn before I got my first salary of just two thousand pounds and so what you got was a telecoms company that was serviced by a scalable cost base and well-skilled resource human resource environment in in South Africa all English speaking all very well educated all living not further than 10 or 20 minutes away from the workplace and I hit the ground running I 15 days into the start of the business I signed what is probably still our largest customer Wow, that's amazing. Um, that's prior to a bank account, prior to direct debit, and just really? about the ability to bill it. That is so good, so good. So when did you start this this business, Mark? Uh, the business started in December 2010. Yeah. And current business has been trading constantly since since then. Yeah. But we incorporated it to sell into the South African market as a right. telecoms company in its own right in yeah. January 2018. Yeah. But that now has over 700 customers. It's billing about a million a year or more. And it's growing. It's a safe environment. But at the beginning of this year, we were acquired by the company that essentially was our largest supplier, which instantaneously created both myself and my business partner, multi-millionaires. Wow, that is so good, isn't it? Yeah, that is the definition of good, I have to say. That is Uh, the definition of good, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, I was enabled to, I'm sitting right now in, you know, my dream house in the mountains in the Lake District. Wow. My business partner was able to, you know, buy off the properties that he had in South Africa and resolve uh, some tricky situations in the UK that he had left up when he was living here. And we're both in a position to invest further into another company that we've had going in the background that's focused more towards IT in the cloud, which is called Cloud 100. But meanwhile, the people who acquired us have rolled us through the beginnings of an earnout and are showing every sign of not wanting to let us go. We're uh, in this odd, odd experience in being the best of all worlds with some really great people around us and being grateful for those people and be able to show it and show it in a meaningful way, which is really... How wonderful. That is really, really fantastic, Mark. And congratulations. Thank you. I'm very happy for you. Okay, so let's talk about your embodied coaching methodology because that's really interesting. I mean, a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs with your degree of success and your prolific activity would not necessarily have chosen to go down the route that you did of, of becoming an NLP master practitioner, uh, doing your master's degree and designing a very unique and bespoke coaching methodology. So I'd love to hear about the thinking that led you to those decisions and of course what embodied coaching is all about it's just uh, i've been as you've been saying that i've been telling it over my head how to begin explaining that and i think that coming back to your failure frame earlier the master's degree came out of a failure it came out of repeated failures actually i'm actually quite good at them i did my nlp trainers training in 2012 and then i decided that i didn't really want to do the whole sort of pack and rack and stack and certification process of making people practitioners then master practitioners and so on because it just felt too much like a job and it also wasn't very interesting to me i wasn't going to learn anything new particularly at that point my brain wanted to do something else yeah and so i tried to create a course which was essentially designed to create a better working environment 
I ran a series of uh, workshops, designed a course, tried to have it certified so that people could come and get continuous professional development points and that sort of thing. People love collecting points and certificates. And all I really wanted was just willing bodies to come and learn. And it, it failed. It failed the certification. I was, you know, essentially being told that I was trying to do too much that was too complicated and would probably cause people to need therapy. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> and almost deliver it at the same time. And it, just, it was just a bit too avant-garde, really. But the lady who was sort of appraising that and rejecting it said, on the other hand, the, the amount of work you've done here and the breadth of understanding you've shown, I'm an adjunct professor or something for University of Derby for a course in applied coaching. I think you could probably easily knock out a couple of 5,000 word essays and make it through the application for mature learning. And if you did, some of your, your trainings to date would, would cover some of the ground as well for uh, the coaching aspect of it. So I did that, put myself under pressure to basically analyze my sort of thousand hours or one and a half thousand hours worth of coaching at the time build some case studies, try and understand them from case study perspectives, submitted those and passed. And then I got admitted to the program. I started getting A's for, for things which I'd never really had before. No, that's amazing. And uh, yeah, in the end, I, I, I stuck my experimental coaching design and the monitoring method that I did for it at the center of my research methodology. And I got like an A star for that. And in the end, I came out with a merit for my master's degree. Wow, that's really, really amazing. What an achievement, particularly for somebody who left school with two GCSEs. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, uh, you know, I, I hashed it out when got a couple more and briefly got an A, uh, an A for a critical art GCSE. But, you know, I mean, that's really this, this, these are not things that are going to help you in business or, or if they do, you can't see how. So it came out of a failure. But another aspect of it is, is that it's an integration of so many different aspects of things that I put into my life. And, and that is out of an interest of human development, human potential that I've had since I was very young. Also reacting to a series of questions I carried since I was a teenager about people, why people behave the way they do. Yes. Turns out I was a bit of a natural psychologist in that all you need in order to become a psychologist is to be dogged about certain questions about the why. Right. And if you're prepared to follow that through in a rational and sequential process then you can go as far as well, anybody that's ever done it before and so i'm also looking to pursue that further towards phd and uh, alongside that you know my my involvement in this area has led me to back what will be the largest online embodiment conference in the world next year wow that's um, really amazing and so that's putting me right at the heart of all the world leaders of uh, embodiment training but coming at it again from a route that was completely um, an outlier. For, um, there is the business development director to oversee the marketing plan and, the, and, and how it's received worldwide. Amazing, amazing. That, that is so good. So, Mark, what, what have you learned about people as a result of your studies and, and of developing this uh, coaching methodology? Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, the, the coaching methodology, I needed to kind of prove that it worked to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to bookend it with two public speaking events. And I put three men, three women through this process. And essentially what I wanted to do was do no public speaking training at all, but then show that they were better after the first one at the second one. Mm -hmm. From their own accounts, even if the, my monitoring methodology could, could be critiqued and, and was, 
their own account said that they felt that they did so much better on the second time around. And the topic of conversation that was given to them just before they did their presentations is, what is my purpose and what am I doing to achieve it? And the upshot from that is that several of them have gone on to seriously achieve following on from that. That's amazing. So it's really, it's really very supportive of peak performance in business and life. Oh, definitely. But I think, I think the thing is that I worked with, I had a hint on, is that when you see someone doing a public, public presentation, um, or even in front of a, a small group of people, you can see the people who don't like it start hyperventilating a bit. They, the, you know, the oxygenation is not great, start going into a little bit of tunnel vision, and they look down a lot. And in fact, the looking down was the thing that I, I monitored for, for my process. Uh-huh. Uh, I won't go into the extreme detail about how I engineered this, but one of the things I thought was that what is it that the people who look up are getting that the people who look down are not? One of the things that they're getting that people who look up is that actually if they pay real attention to the audience, the vast majority of the people in the audience, they actually want them to succeed. They want them to do well, and they definitely don't want them to do badly. That's the other thing. Is no one wants to sit there and watch someone do badly. No. Um, we would all love to turn up and watch someone do really well. And so one of the things that I, I learned was just that if the person felt more comfortable in themselves, if they were less afraid of failing, then they might look up, they might pay more attention to what's going on around them. Because when you're not reflecting and you're not worrying about what's going on inside, we naturally look outside. Mm, true. That's really, really interesting. You've got to look somewhere, right? I mean, the, the, the human being is inherently curious. And I think it's better if, that, if that's supported. The other thing is I, I taught people how to fall. I took that element out of Aikido. And something really bizarre happened is that in, when you break down teaching somebody how to fall, one of the things you have to do, because this when we do falling in Aikido, it's because someone's trying to punch you or throw you or something. Yeah. Is that you, if you don't resist it, you try and step back a little bit to try and absorb it. It's all about not, not inter, interacting with or engaging in that space at that time. Yes. And just the stepping back element was something that people found profoundly helpful. And it just created a little bit of space to take a look at what was happening. Very interesting. And in that space, all the information they needed, which suddenly filled the dark space in which they were afraid, informed them of how to be and what to say and what to do next. And sometimes just stepping to one side or stepping back, as with a painter who can't really make sense of a painting until they get the whole picture again. Yes. The, the problems really only lock you down when you limit the information you're prepared to receive. And being vulnerable to new information is just so important to the learning process. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I used to do life drawing a long time ago. And of course, the way that they teach you to draw bodies is actually rather than looking at the body and drawing the outline of it, is to look at the spaces in between. Absolutely. The negative space. Yeah, I often think about that as a kind of analogy. And it's it sort of uh, what you were saying just reminded me of that. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So your your business, Brighter Lives, what's the plan for that going forward? Yeah, so I mean, essentially, Brighter Lives is is coming becoming a bit of a holding company for the other interests. So I do some coaching and training for some of the businesses that we relate to in South Africa. Yeah. Um, with 35 to 40 staff out there at any one point in time. You know, my skill set is, is the closest to what we need in order to keep uh, continual uh, mentoring and, and coaching going there. Yes. The other factor here in the UK is that I run two spaces teaching Aikido, and that's, that's become fairly, fairly engaged. And moreover, when you see people relying on your presence and your continuity, you start to understand that you're having a bit more of a long-term impact, which is very rewarding. Fantastic. 
And then, uh, you know, I've done things like help people to launch businesses and done sort of an entrepreneurial coaching consultancy. It's, it's almost like becoming a bit of a midwife at that point, because one of the things I hold is it's a broad picture of what happens over a life cycle or a couple of life cycles. Yes. Across a variety of different personality types and how they interact with each other. Say, for example, one of the biggest questions in business, I'm sure you agree, is how do I know of this quality here, right? Yes. Now, what happens if you've got two completely different personality types and we're still talking about quality? Well, they'll define quality in different ways. Yeah, but that, even that's quite an intelligent response. Do you know what I mean? That, that's to, to be aware that that could happen. Yes. So even knowing that that could happen could give you a chance to break that down and, and make sense of maybe two different methods of receiving information and communicating it. So let's just say, for example, you have somebody that's highly detailed. Uh-huh. And that person needs to see all the details. Yeah, and they, if you're very lucky, that person will operate off of a, a checklist. If they don't, then you never know when something's finished, right? <laughs> <laughs> gone forever so the way of coaching and mentoring that person is to give them a a a sense of when something might be finished yes and the fact that you know we don't live in a world of endless time so that you know you kind of have to finish something and then you take that and you you leave that to one side and you go to the person who's more big picture yeah and that person actually things just need to look kind of you know you've got all the elements there let's get on with it now if you put those two together the detailed person is going to frustrate the hell out of the big picture person. Yes, true. And the big, big picture person probably want to fire that other person. Yes. Which is a real shame because they both want quality and the detailed person is how the big picture person gets quality. Interesting, yeah. And then the obviously the other factor is, is that you can be really detailed and drill a hole forever, but will that hole ever get you to the, the place you want to end up? Quite often you can reason with the more detailed person in that there's places in life they want to get to that their overly detailed approach won't get them. You know, how do these people make millions? How do these people travel around the world and have houses in different places? Whatever the, the big dream is that you have, yes. how does that happen? And it really, rarely ever does it come from drilling down into Minute in one small place. You, you're likely more likely to become a Nobel Prize laureate for chemistry than you are to become Steve Jobs. You know? Yes. Um, and if that's what you want, then obviously keep going in the other direction. But yeah, so it's an understanding like this that enables you to then start to build a team and help to build a, a way of cohesive communication where you might have personality types that would ordinarily just clash off each other. And it's about surviving the learning cycles, having them and surviving them with all the same people so you don't get brain drain. I really love that because there's quite a lot of creativity to that as as well as that interpersonal sensitivity. And, you know, I find that absolutely fascinating approach. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, And and this is kind of what we do in Brighter Lives. That's, uh, but I mean, to put a finer point on it, the point of Brighter Lives is to encourage, support, create and facilitate Brighter Lives. Uh, That's the word it started out as an idea walking down the street. You know, maybe when I was about 24 or 25, I suddenly, I was having a you know, tough time. The sun came out and all of a sudden I thought, well, that's ridiculous and irrational, but I feel better about everything. Oh. Um, and I thought, well, you know what? If an external stimulus can reframe the entire way I see the world, surely I can remodel that as an internal stimulus. I love that. Oh, and that's, that's, that's so pretty NLP as well. Yeah. 
I love that. Right. Well, well, we've talked for a good three quarters of an hour, Mark, and you know, it's just been such a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so interesting to have your perspective as a very holistic but very successful entrepreneur. So thank you very, very much and wishing you all the best with your future activities. Thank you and same to you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Smart Connector podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not head over to janebaylor.com and order a copy of my free report on building your personal brand. I'd love to connect with you on social media. And finally, don't forget to like and subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss a show. Thanks for listening in and see you soon.